Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, no matter what the truth is, China has succeeded in triggering a political and media feeding frenzy that threatens to do some real damage to Canadian democracy. How do we get through this unscathed? And with the uh, latest ruling from Ontario courts and BC courts, uh, the question is being raised, what do those communities do about homeless encampments? And the Ontario Liberal Party's uh, upcoming AGM presents an opportunity for them to, well, make some changes that could put them back in good graces with the Ontario voters. And it's going to be held right here in Hamilton. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. All eyes on Ottawa, of course, over the last couple of days because of the uh, the Parliamentary Committee, which is investigating, uh, well, foreign interference, shall we say, in Canadian elections. Yesterday, uh, the director of Canada's spy agency uh, did testify before that committee. He said the main threat to integrity of the country's election comes from China, but not from the Chinese people, but the Chinese government. I think we kind of knew that, but good to reiterate that. Uh, David Vigneault, of course, is the, the head spy, and uh, he's testifying in front of the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, says that CSIS takes the issue of foreign elections very seriously. We have been clear that the principal threat to Canada comes from the People's Republic of China. But to be clear... The threat does not come from the Chinese people, but rather from the Chinese Communist Party and the government of China. Indeed, we are keenly aware that Chinese communities are often the primary victims of PRC foreign interference efforts in Canada. So uh, a lot of stuff there. And, and one of the things I guess was so frustrating for some of the MPs that were on, those com- on that committee, a lot of information we already knew from, uh, from Mr. Vigneault. And uh, we declined to answer an awful lot of the rather probing questions, I guess, that a lot of us have on our minds these days. So what damage has been done and what damage is continuing to be done? And what's the government doing about this uh, concern about foreign interference? Uh, Please welcome our next guest who can talk about this. Uh, Charles Burton is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Charles, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Good to speak with you. So let's ask what's happening here with the investigation. There's so many questions circling around here. You know, should there be an official inquiry into this? Uh, can this parliamentary committee handle what's going on? I mean, even the uh, NDP House leader uh, yesterday uh, suggested uh, that that probably not, that there's more can be done and more needs to be done, and the parliamentarians can't do that. What's, what's your read on, on what needs to be done here and, and how effective they can be? Well, you know, I, I gave evidence to that committee uh, before the stories from the Globe and Mail started to appear. I think the the essence of it is that, you know, we have the reports by Bob Fife and Steve Chase mm-hmm. of the Globe and Mail and Sam Cooper of Global News, who have been given access to classified CSIS reports, reports that have been shared with our Five Eyes uh, Intelligence Consortium allies and some other countries. So, you know, clearly these reports are not just uh, kind of speculation. We wouldn't be showing them around if if we didn't think there was some basis to them. But in the course of the hearing, because the reports are top secret classified, you know, whenever the MPs start to get to asking questions about the details, the um, the CSIS people and the people from, you know, other national security agencies that have been brought to Parliament to, uh, to give evidence and explain what's going on, uh, you know, start to say, well, um, you know, it's a very serious problem. We're doing everything we can about it, uh, but we can't get into the operational details because it could endanger um, human sources or give insight into how CSIS engages in investigation. So basically, as soon as you get to the interesting stuff, they clam up. 
So that that is a real barrier. So the idea of a, of a of another inquiry, a public inquiry, would be to get some distinguished nonpartisan figure, uh, you know, a retired judge, say, who would be given a full security clearance, allowed to see everything, um, you know, with the power to to call anybody that they think would be helpful to to provide information and insight into this, to give evidence under oath, and then. Um, you know, some of it would be public, some of it would be uh, behind closed doors, particularly, as as you know, you point out in your introduction, the risk to persons of Chinese origin here in Canada or intimidations of their family in China would make some people reluctant to speak out publicly. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, within a timely period, preferably well before the next election, uh, we get some fairly clear statement on what's going on and a demand that the RCMP do something about stopping it so that we don't see, you know, with interference in the 2019 election and interference in the 2021 election, that we don't see a continuation of the same kind of, you know, corrupt behavior instigated by the Chinese communist regime in the next election. And and I think that's a very important point. Uh, You know, even if there is, as some people are suggesting, an official inquiry, uh, there's still a lot of information uh, that, that we're just not going to get uh, from these people, as you say, for security reasons. So if you've got a real thirster, you know, you want to know what, exactly who did what and when and to whom, uh, that may never become public information. As you say, the you know, the people that are going to do an inquiry may get eyes on some of that stuff, but we won't. Yeah, I think the main thing is we want to take the politics out of it. And, yeah. you know, right now they... The, the committee that the Prime Minister has set up of, of uh, Liberal and other parties, MPs that are given the security clearance to review what's going on with our security agencies, um, are, those people are not allowed to, to reveal what they know and any reports that they give out uh, have to go through the Prime Minister's office first. So, you know, that that causes one to feel that they might not be as forthcoming as they should be. So if you get a neutral figure who is mandated to do this, that would give, I think, Canadians more assurance. But I mean, the real issue in this thing is that we hear that there is extensive problems with uh, Chinese um, interference in the, ele- in the election. And from the reports in the in the newspapers and global news, you know, we understand that there's some outrageous things going on, like schemes where the Chinese embassy gets people to make donations to political candidates that they favor, and then they take the tax receipt to, you know, another Chinese agency, you know, Chinese police station, Confucius Institute, front organization or whatever, and get reimbursed for the part that hasn't been um, uh, tax deductible paid by people like you and me um, off, you know, off their tax. So, I mean, that is like outrageously fraudulent behavior. And the question is, why hasn't the RCMP done an investigation, you know, established who among the very large cohort of Chinese diplomats in Canada is running this uh, criminal operation and getting all the people who have uh, defrauded, uh, um, you know, the tax department uh, to um, to to be brought to a court of law to to be made accountable for this kind of uh, crime. So the, the issue really is like they say a lot of things are going on. They say that they're doing something about it, but you know, not a single Chinese diplomat has been expelled, and uh, we haven't had a single 
um, charges laid against any of the agents of the Chinese regime that have been uh, complicit in this activity. And we heard from the RCMP when they gave evidence to the committee that they have no ongoing investigations of anything relating to the 2019 and 2021 elections. Well, the huge question is why? You know, why aren't we acting on on the information that CSIS apparently has? Because, uh, you know, our newspapers and, and other respected journalists are, are, um, are have seen this information and are reporting on it. We can only speculate as to what the reason for that might be, but is if, as a sense of cooperation between CSIS and the RCMP? I mean, I, in, the, in the past, they've had a, a somewhat of an acrimonious relationship uh, when it comes to things like information sharing. And, you know, CSIS can collect the information, but they just present it and say, here, you, you guys do what you think you need to do with this. The RCMP has the ability to investigate and lay charges. And they, as you say, they don't even seem to be interested in starting that process yet. Well, you know, I think that CSIS is very reluctant to provide fulsome information to the RCMP. This has been an ongoing issue. You know, they gather intelligence, they seem to curate it, they share it roundabout to people in government, they send it to our allies, but they may not be providing enough details to give CSIS the basis for engaging in an investigation. So, you know, that's the kind of issue that we would like to get clear through a public inquiry. And also whether there are any elements within the government of Canada that have been suppressing this information and preventing it from being acted on. You know, just we just need to get clear on what's going on here and do something about it um, rather than this kind of, um, you know, word salad that we're getting out of politicians one way or another. It's just become a highly politicized issue when it really should be something that that is in Canada's sovereignty and security and integrity of our democratic process that we should all be working together on. How are we being viewed by our partners? Uh, you know, we, I, I think probably a lot of people in this country right now, Charles, probably didn't even think that Canada would be worthy of, 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 of uh, intelligence gathering by the Chinese, the Russians, uh, the North Koreans, whatever. We are. I think you know we're, our eyes are open to that reality now. Uh, but so are the U.S., uh, the, mm-hmm. Australia, I mean, go right down, even the Five Eyes partners. Uh, They've got to be looking at this and saying, okay, this is the protocol that we use. This is how we address this. You know, when the U.S. did their very uh, extensive investigation into Russian interference, it took two and a half years. But you're right. Charges were laid. People were mm-hmm. expelled. They just said, you know, in other words, there were action items out of that. Uh, we're not doing that in this country. It's got to be frustrating for our partners in intelligence to say, look, at you, you've got to get on the same page as we are. Yeah, I think that that is an issue. And, you know, if we are seen as a weak partner in the Five Eyes Intelligence Consortium, will the U.S. get fed up with us and cease to to be uh, sharing as much intelligence uh, to us as as uh, you know we need for securing our Arctic, for securing our our, our southern border, and so on? So, you know that is a, a major major concern. And while other countries have got legislation you know, like the Australian Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act that requires anybody in a position of trust in government, if they are the recipients of benefits from a foreign state, to have to declare it. In other words, you know, be transparent about the money that you're getting from a foreign source because that could be compromising you in some kind of way. Canada has so far not moved on this. And I think this is, you know, it, it just, you, you just wonder what are the motivations for saying, oh, well, we, we can't do legislation where people have to be transparent about money they may have received from China or, or Russia or Iran. Um, you, you know, what's the justification for that? Obviously, anybody in a position of, 
of of public trust making policy towards China or whatever should not be taking money from the from a foreign country. You know, that's sort of seems to me pretty elementary. So other countries have provisions for this. We don't. And I think the Americans and the Australians and the Brits are looking at Canada and wondering, like, why aren't we getting with the program and getting into compliance with the norms of other nations in meeting the challenge of foreign subversion? And, it, and why is it taking so long, I, I guess, to respond? Because we've talked about this anecdotally, Charles, over the last couple of years now. Uh, the, uh, there's always been some concern expressed about uh, Chinese scientists, some of the military scientists uh, that are working uh, in concert with Canadian universities, uh, a lot of that being funded by uh, by the Chinese government. Uh, we don't know where that information is going. Well, I got a pretty good idea. Uh, as you mentioned, we have, they're yeah. actually Chinese have set up police shops, they call them, uh, in different parts of the country right now. I mean, in other words, they're developing an infrastructure for their intelligence gathering in this country. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of the dual-use um, research, in other words, dual-use in the sense it has civilian and military applications, is based on data that we share with our allies. So, you know, if the Chinese are seeing that they can send um, agents of the People's Liberation Army into Canada using falsified Canadian entry visa applications and then transfer that information to the Chinese military, naturally our allies would feel like, why isn't Canada engaging in the same measures to counter this as we are? So, you know, there are a lot of issues like this. And I think in general, the Chinese regime would have much more respect for Canada if we weren't so weak and and able to be infiltrated. You, you know, it's not good for Canada-China relations if if we are such pushovers and they can take such advantage of us with absolutely, evidently, no cost to them whatsever. Where do you see this going? I mean, we've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, the Parliamentary Committee will continue their hearings. I don't know if there's a whole lot we're going to learn that uh, that we don't already know because a lot of it's speculative. Even Jody Thomas, yeah. uh, National Security Advisor, said, look, at, uh, the stuff you've got here is incomplete and out of context, and, and that may actually be the case. So we're never going to get a clear picture from this committee. But does it behoove this government to, to go to the next step and just say we've got to get some clarity on this? Or do they already know that and just haven't told us exactly what's going on? Well, I think that Canadians want to know. You know, this information has come out in the press. Um, the journalists who have reported it are respected figures. So, in other words, I think there's a high degree of credibility to to these reports. And I, I think you're right. The committee process is not working out well because, you know, the opposition parties are are seeing this as how can we discredit the prime minister? We don't have enough information to really know if if it's due to you know the idea the idea that the prime minister is somehow an an agent of a foreign power is you know just not like there's no evidence for that uh you know and, but we need to get clarity on exactly what the process was and and i think we it would be helpful if the prime minister was more forthcoming and saying, uh, you know, we haven't been acting as well on this as we should. We are going to do an investigation of our processes and the relationship between CSIS and the RCMP. And, you know, we plan to take measures uh, to 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 address this more f in a more fulsome matter. That would be better. But in the meantime, if we have someone that Canadians can trust as a nonpartisan um, person with a high degree of probity um, looking into these secret documents and calling people in and to the extent possible giving Canadians a reassurance that that we're on top of this and are going to take action to, to, to prevent it from recurring, I think that would be very helpful and probably a benefit to the government who are 
currently highly under suspicion because they, you know, as you say, they can't say what they know. And therefore, a lot of people suspect the worst. Exactly. Charles, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Good to speak with you. Take care. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad and the Macdonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tent cities in Canadian cities. Uh, they've cropped up, of course, in larger numbers during COVID and the lockdown. Uh, they still exist in many communities, Hamilton being among them, of course. Uh, what do city councils do? What should we be doing about this? Is it a public health issue? Should they be evicted from those places? Or is that a violation of their rights? Well, it's a different story in different parts of the country. And uh, if you're looking for a legal precedent, uh, you're going to find it very frustrating. Our next guest has done some research on this, and it's a very revealing story. Uh, Justin Chandler is a journalist with TVO, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Justin, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us this morning. Oh, thank you. Good morning and happy Friday. And to you, too. As you know, Toronto Council, Hamilton Council, KW, uh, a number of cities right now are trying to learn how to deal with tent cities. Uh, Some people look at them as a blight in the community. They don't want to see them. Uh, You know, the fact that they're in front of us now, it kind of brings to to right in front of our faces here that, you know, we've got poverty problems here. But how do the cities react to this and what are they allowed to do legally? Well, that kind of depends on where encampments are and uh, what province you're talking about. So if we're thinking about Ontario, um, a lot of municipalities have rules that say you can't camp in parks. And basically that means you can't set up an encampment and stay there overnight. Um, And so what happens in a lot of places, uh, Hamilton, for example, um, or what we recently saw in the region of Waterloo, is that uh, an encampment comes up, uh, unhoused people are living there and the region or the city says, okay, we're going to be moving you guys. You need to leave. Um, in the Waterloo case, they tried to get an injunction uh, to evict people. And and that causes all sorts of problems. And I know there have been some places where eviction orders have been issued uh, when they've gone to court. Uh, but again, it, as you say, it depends on which jurisdiction you're in right now. You can't really look at one of these decisions and say, well, that's the precedent. So we can do this or we can't do this. Yes, and this new uh, Waterloo decision is uh, going to be very interesting, and that's something that could become precedential in Ontario. I think we still need to see uh, what's going to happen with this, but what happened there was when the region asked um, the Superior Court of Ontario for this injunction, uh, the justice ruled uh, at the end of January that to evict the residents there uh, when there was inadequate indoor shelter space would actually violate their rights to life, liberty, and security of the person under Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, and said, you know, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, and so that's a, a pretty big decision. And if that's the sort of thing that starts coming up in other Ontario municipalities, we could really see a sea change. And I know you've actually even talked not just to, to the you know the public officials about this, but some of the people in these locations uh, and in these tent cities, and uh, you know they all have their stories, I suppose. And and as you pointed out in the piece, and we'll direct them to the webpage in a second here. I mean, some of them are there because they don't want to go to a shelter because it's not safe. I mean, people have been assaulted in shelters. A number of things can happen there. You talked to, I guess it was one resident of one of the cities there, tent cities that. Uh, uh, you know, the shelter's not accessible and that she needs that. So th- this is, they think, their only option. So, y- you know, when you're looking at, at human rights infringements and things of this nature, you figure, well, wait a second, there, there doesn't seem to be a one-size-fits-all here, does there? 
No. And the thing that a lot of experts or people experiencing homelessness will say is that there need to be different options for people. Um, and that's where when you mentioned accessibility, this starts to come in. So there was a landmark case in British Columbia in 2008 that brought this idea forward, um, saying that if there's not enough shelter spaces, um, it would be a violation of people's rights to kick them out of an encampment. And eventually that case was refined to say that not only do there have to be an adequate number, but they have to be accessible. And that means that people need to actually be able to use these spaces. And shelters, for various reasons, have restrictions on drug use, on couples staying together, on pets. Uh, and those are just some of the reasons why people might end up in an encampment instead, because maybe they don't want to be away from their partner, who's their caregiver or the person, you know, their rock, somebody they love. Uh, they don't want to be away from their pet. Um, they need to use drugs and they can't be in a space um, where they're not able to because they've got an addiction. Uh, so there's lots of reasons why people can't or don't access uh, traditional shelter spaces. And this new Ontario decision has brought that from the BC decision to say that, you know, spaces do need to be accessible as well as just uh, existing. But in, in your research, I, I, I get the impression that this isn't going to happen anytime soon. I'm just trying to connect the dots here. We were just talking on the program about 20 minutes ago, but, uh, you know, the money that was available for affordable housing uh, during the pandemic is gone. You know, the province is not writing checks anymore. So cities like Hamilton, Toronto, KW, London, all of them, are basically left to fend on their own. And it's not as if they have a lot of cash accessible to them to say, okay, we can we can slap up a couple of shelters right now. That's just not going to happen, is it? No, I don't. I don't think we're going to see big immediate changes like that. Uh, the region of Waterloo has decided not to appeal this decision, and they're actually working on building um, an, an interesting project, sort of an outdoor um, tiny home-based shelter. Um, but it's only going to have room for, I think, 50 people. And that's 10% uh, of their current shelter capacity, but they've got about 1,000 uh, unhoused people per recent point in time count. So, um, yeah, there's there's clearly a lot of need that's not being met, and that's the case in Hamilton and in cities uh, all across Ontario. It's, it's not like uh, we're going to have uh, new shelter spaces and housing springing up instantly. And, and it's kind of like a big backward step, though, because, I mean, you know, for years now, municipalities have been looking to the federal and provincial governments for assistance. And, and the message that pretty much getting, especially to do with this issue here, is, uh, you know, you've got your troubles, but we've got ours, too. So, you know, you're on your own, guys, uh, which is bad news, I guess, for people like you and I who are ratepayers. Yeah, I suppose, um, you know, someone's got to pay for this stuff. But um, I think really we need to be thinking about you know, are we meeting people's needs and thinking about uh, this human rights approach, right? Because if people have a right to life, liberty and security of the person that uh, a lot of people will say that trumps um, everything. And we need to be working to uh, actually combat poverty and homelessness. Exactly. Uh, great piece. People can go to the webpage here. Uh, that's uh, uh, tvo.org uh, backslash article tale of two tent cities uh, and get all the details on this. Uh, great work on this, Justin. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You take care. Justin Chandler, who's a journalist with TVO, who did the research on this. And uh, municipalities right across the province, of course, very concerned about this. And, and like you say, you can't just wipe them out. We've seen that happen before. And there are all sorts of accusations about police brutality and on and on it goes in circumstances like that. And you've got to weigh that on the other side of the ledger, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. 
and uh, it's uh, it's not an easy solution. If in fact there is a solution out there, but we'll certainly follow this story because it has a direct impact on communities right across the area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This weekend, though, uh, even with the snow, uh, there's a whole bunch more people going to be in downtown Hamilton. Uh, the Ontario Liberal Party is uh, having their general meeting, their annual general meeting. And uh, they got a lot on their plate these days, as you might imagine. Uh, a couple of days ago, we talked with uh, Scarborough MPP Mitzi Hunter, uh, who talks about what she's expecting to have happen this weekend at the convention. She said there's going to be a robust debate of about 1,500 delegates about uh, what the party should be like, uh, the kind of policies, and, of course, who the next leader might be. Here's what Mitzi had to say. In 2022, 1.1 million people in Ontario voted for Liberal. And that's more than the NDP received. And uh, and so what it did not translate to was more seats. We, we only came away with eight seats. So we have a lot of work to do ahead of us. We know that. And it, it starts very much um, with the conversation we're going to have this weekend. Uh, by the way, that same conversation, uh, Mitzi Hunter told us that she was not going to be running for the Ontario leadership, uh, made that decision. So uh, that's one less candidate. We're not quite sure. You don't know Mike Schreiner's not going to run for it either. He made that announcement a couple of weeks ago, the Green Party leader. So what can we expect this weekend and what should they be doing? Uh, this is a party that's, that's, I guess, trying to get back on their feet after a couple of, uh, well, embarrassing defeats in the last couple of provincial elections. Uh, to analyze this, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Andrew Perez. Uh, Andrew is a senior consultant at Hill and Knowlton Strategies, uh, volunteered for the Liberals during the 2022 election, and offers some uh, insight into what's going on. Andrew, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Great to be here, Bill. Right, right up front, let me ask you a, a question I'm getting from an awful lot of people. This is the, the AGM, and, and political parties hold these all the time. Uh, but this is a party without an official leader right now. And uh, some people are wondering why not. I mean, what? why are they taking their time to do this? The NDP have a new leader, uh, and she's gaining some traction in the media right now. Uh, I know they not, the next election is not going to be for a long, long time. Uh, but should they be spending or maybe accelerating the process around to find somebody that, that can be the face of this party? Uh, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, my understanding is the so the this weekend liberals are are convening in Hamilton and will elect a new party executive and that executive within the next six weeks to two months will set the rules for this leadership race. So we don't yet know when that leadership race will be held. My sense is it would be held in late 2023. Um, to early 2024. So it it would be a fairly lengthy process, um, but the next general election is not until 2026. So we still have three and a half years to prepare the groundwork. And I think it's important that we not rush the, le the leadership campaign. We need to ensure that we have a robust leadership campaign with a variety of candidates, leadership debates, allow time for candidates to travel throughout the province and meet with grassroots liberals and try to sell memberships and attract new people to the party. So I think right now the key focus is to have a robust leadership race and to allow enough time for that for that contest to take place. Well, and, and therein lies part of the problem. And I, I hearken back to, uh, I guess it was 2006 when, uh, when Paul Martin was defeated by Stephen Harper in the federal election and stepped down on election night. Uh, it took him almost a year 
uh, to find That's a right. new leader. Yep. And, and it didn't go well, by the way. Uh, eventually, in Montreal, they chose Stefan Dion. Uh, but th- there is this suggestion that, you know, there's there's a, an immediacy in politics uh, that, that, you know, people want to know what's going on. You know, they, they want to know who the leader is. And uh, you mentioned about the liberals wanting to attract new people to the party. How can you do that when they don't know who that person's going to be? Who's going to be in charge here? Because that is a major factor. You're certainly right, Bill. I think it's a fine line between ensuring that we have a robust contest with a runway of, let's say, eight to 12 months to have that contest to allow candidates to come out of the woodwork and build campaigns and and, and sign up new members, but also, to your point, to have that leader in place. Um, Either way, you know, the leadership candidates that are likely to run are not household names, so they will need that runway uh, a couple years um, as the leader in the legislature, in the media, building that name recognition, building that brand for the party. We saw with with Stephen Del Duca, um, he had less than two years to do so in a COVID-19 pandemic environment, and it didn't work out for him. So I think the lesson from 2006, and by the way, I was at that convention in Montreal in, in early December 2006. I'm not sure the lesson is that that, that leadership contest was too long, we can go back and relitigate who won that race, Stefan Dion, and why that didn't work out. But I'm not sure it was the process um, that was the problem. I think it was probably the end result in terms of who the delegates uh, selected. So I'm hoping, you know, because the election won't be till spring 2026, I am confident that we still have a significant runway. Even if we put the new leader in place in early 2024, that would still give us um, two and a half years to introduce our new leader to Ontarians. Where uh, do we look for uh, the, as a party now when the Liberals meet here? I, as you say, they're going to decide on policy, which is another one of the debates that you and I have uh, have covered over the last uh, couple of months, I guess now, Andrew, uh, is you've got to have an identity. Yeah, people in this province have to know who these people are. And as you say, they, they'll decide their process. But what do they stand for? Because what are the criticisms of the Liberals over the last little while under Kathleen Wynne uh, and to a certain extent, Stephen Del Duca was look at you, you guys are out NDPing the NDP. You're way too far to the left, yeah. uh, and we're not comfortable with that. Uh, and you're not going to get elected by just saying, "Well, we're not Doug Ford." Uh, you've got to have something of substance here, and and this seems to me to be a political party that's looking for an identity. For sure, and we've we've had these conversations before, Bill. I I, I think we're 100 aligned. Just to be clear for your listeners, this annual general meeting in Hamilton this weekend won't so much be um, weighing in on policy. It will be more focused on internal party mechanics. So, uh, making changes to the party constitution, um, voting on a crucial question, which we can get into later, on whether the party should adopt a one-member, one-vote system to elect its leader. Um, until now, we we have a delegated convention model. And in fact, I just had a piece in Queen's Park Briefing earlier this week, arguing strongly in favor of the party adopting a one-member, one-vote, whereby every party member has a vote for the leader. Um, but to your question around identity, we've lost our identity. What it meant to be an Ontario Liberal 10 years ago under Dalton McGuinty is not necessarily clear what it means today. And I do think we've we've moved far too too much to the left. I think there's brand conflation. I think there many voters aren't able to differentiate between the Ontario NDP and the Ontario Liberal Party. We have historically been a party of the centre. And yes, the centre can move a bit to the right, a bit to the left, depending on circumstances, depending on where we are as a province. But 
that's been the brilliance of the Ontario Liberal Party and the Federal Liberal Party is they have traditionally been parties of the centre, pragmatic, centrist, socially progressive and compassionate, but also fiscally responsible and, and understanding the role of the economy and jobs and growth. So I want to see those discussions come back into the party. I want us to be proud of the fact that under Dalton McGuinty, for a period of time, we had the lowest corporate tax rates in Canada. That's not something we've ever emphasized as a party. But at the same time, we introduced full-day kindergarten. We restored public education in this province. We made massive investments to public health care. So let's let's own our record and let's advance a liberalism that is progressive, but also is economically savvy. And let's not let's not avoid having those conversations about good economics and, and good public policy. But when you lose something, uh, credibility, whatever, elections certainly, uh, the, the difficult task here is, okay, how do you get that back? Uh, because when the Liberals moved way to the left, as you just described, uh, the, Doug Ford Conservative, PCs, actually moved a little bit more to the middle. I mean, they're still a Conservative Party, but they took in, a, you know, it's the old idea, when there's a vacuum there, something's going to move into it. Uh, I never thought I'd see a progressive Conservative uh, Premier running for re-election, uh, you know, with labor unions supporting him. I mean, you know, Leuna was there, a number of other unions were there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, because he was the, he's the, the jobs guy. I'm going to create jobs. I'm going to get people working again. Uh, you know, you, there's a, a monumental task here to di- identify this team, to define this team, and then to sell it. And, and boy, you know, maybe three years is not enough time to ha- get that happening. The, the sooner you start that process, the better. It, it is a monumental task, and I'm hoping that that really kicks off starting today in Hamilton at this AGM. It's the largest non-leadership convention gathering of our party in more than 20 years. We'll have more than 1,500 grassroots liberals uh, at this conference this weekend. So I think that's exciting and that's encouraging. We have lots of things to be optimistic about. But to your point, we need to really identify what we stand for. We now have... And, and some liberals will not like to hear this, a relatively moderate conservative government in power. We also have an NDP to our left that are relatively moderate. And so the risk is that we're squeezed out on the political spectrum. And so we need to reassert ourselves. And, and also this government right now at Queen's Park has had a lot of ethical issues that we've seen. There's been major policy issues around the green belt, around healthcare and privatization. There is a big space for our party to occupy, especially on ethics and accountability and, and the green belt. And so um, I think we need to make the tough decisions, but I think there is a space that we can occupy, but we need to be clear about what we about what we stand for. And I do really think we need to adopt a one member, one vote system. I think that will be important for our party's renewal and bringing new people into the party who feel they have a say. There's been a sense in our party for a long time that we're an insider's club. We have these delegated leadership conventions where a small, a small portion of our party members have an actual say on the next leader. And that's not healthy. I think we're the only mainstream party left in Canada that still has a delegated convention model in place. Every other mainstream party has a one member, one vote system of some variation. So I think we need to make some of these tough party reforms this weekend. And and by the way, just to be clear on this, I mean, the Liberals are not the only political party that have different factions within the party. I mean, the, the NDP were going through an identity crisis uh, over the last couple of years, too. You know, uh, do they stay as the traditional NDP, uh, you know, uh, Labour Party, et cetera? Do they move on like Tony Blair tried to do with the Labour Party in the UK years mm-hmm. ago? Uh, and that's an ongoing discussion there, too. And I'm sure there are uh, people within the PC caucus that are wondering what they're doing. And, and I know for a fact 
uh, some longtime PCs are not comfortable with Doug Ford moving a little bit to the middle. They, they want to stay over there on the right. So that, that's going to happen. But when you're losing, it makes everything sound worse and, and it exaggerates all those challenges. Yeah. And if I can just make a point, Bill, and you actually raised this the last time we spoke, you, you noted and you were correct. The candidates, there's three of them so far that are seriously putting together leadership bids. None of them are household names. They're not well known. I would just push back on that a bit and say, I don't think that's a bad thing. The fact is there's no Justin Trudeau Messiah candidate coming out of the woodwork for us. And there's no quick fixes. So our next leader, regardless of who it is, is not going to be a household name. They're not going to be perfect. And if you look at some of the two of the most successful Ontario Liberal leaders in our history, David Peterson and Dalton McGuinty, when they became leader, they were not known. They were they were awkward. They weren't particularly compelling speakers, but they grew in their roles through hard work, grit, and determination. They grew into those leadership roles. And especially when they became premier, um, they were able to run, you know, the largest province in this country quite effectively and had a lot of success. And you know, after a few years, they were seen to be charismatic and very impactful leaders, but that was not the case when they first became leaders. So I think we have strong candidates, but what I'm trying to get across is whoever is our next leader will will have to grow into the role. And as liberals, we need to accept that. We need to be patient. We need to understand that our next leader will have to grow into the role. And I think that's critical that that our grassroots members understand that. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll be certainly down there. CHML will be covering it and uh, talking to a lot of those delegates over the next couple of days. And uh, we'll see uh, what uh, is going to come out the other end of it. Uh, always a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bill. Take care. Andrew Perez, uh, working for Hilden Knowlton Strategies, and he'll be attending the conference, I'm sure, uh, here in Hamilton as the Ontario Liberals, uh, well, try to get their act together. And it's difficult. It's it's a monumental task to climb back out after you've uh, lost a couple of elections uh, rather decisively. And I know, as Mitzi Hunter told us, that the actual vote number was was impressive, more than the NDP. But that's our Canadian political system. It's not necessarily how many votes you have. It's where those votes are. And, uh, I, you know, the, the federal Conservative Party could tell you all about that. The last two federal elections... Uh, they've actually secured more votes than the Liberals did, but it's where those votes are. Uh, you know, they didn't get the seats out of it. And uh, so, you know, there's there's a lot of work and strategy to be doing here. And it's interesting to see just how they're going to get that ball rolling. And maybe it's going to start this weekend in Hamilton. We'll see. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.